It's so good to be here. Uh, there's, I have such a great appreciation for this church, even though I've never been here. Buddy is really, man, you're one of my heroes when it comes to preaching and being a follower of Jesus. We loved having Lindsay and Ben at Sycamore View for a while. Uh, and I, I love the sermon series you're in right now, and it's such an honor to be able to come and to be a part of that, to talk about how God intercedes for cities. Because when you see through it, when you look at Scripture, it's evident in the Old Testament, God cared about cities. He cared about the redemption, not just of individuals walking into a covenant with him. He cared about cities being redeemed. Jesus did too. All right, Jesus spoke woes over cities. He also spoke blessings over cities. Have you noticed before when Paul writes most of his letters, he doesn't write to individuals, he writes to churches. And when he writes to churches, he doesn't write to such and such main street in Corinth. He writes to the churches of Corinth, to the churches of Rome, to the saints of Ephesus. So as Paul writes, Paul, I think, knows that how the the story of salvation goes is not just that Jesus is calling individuals into a covenant with him, but that Jesus wants to light individuals and family units and churches on fire so that they have an impact all around us. God cares about cities. You see it in Jesus' prayer life. All right, where Jesus prays over cities. And we'll get to Luke chapter 19 in a little while. Even in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is surrendering to the will of God. You remember that story when he's praying in the garden right before he dies? And three different times, Jesus gives his disciples a command. And the command is, stay awake. How many of you need that command in your life this morning, all right? We got some tired people. Would you agree that we live, we are some of the most exhausted people who have ever lived on the face of this planet? All right, we're some exhausted people. Uh, I've been off five-hour energies now for five months, and every time I say that at Sycamore View, our Celebrate Recovery crowd gives me a round of applause, all right? Um, we're exhausted and we're tired. When I was in Abilene, I went to school at ACU. I had a friend, he asked me to preach at his church one Sunday. He was preaching at a, a church of 15 people, and if one family was gone for the weekend, the church was down to about eight. How many of you grew up in small churches like that? All right, so he asked me to go and fill in for him one day. So my wife and I drove out there. I showed up with the Bible class ready and the sermon. But when I showed up at church, I also realized I was the song leader that day. I had the opening and closing prayer. I had the prayers for the bread, cup, and offering. And not only did I pray over all of it, I was also the one who passed all of the trays. I was doing everything. Now, I didn't mind preaching because that's what I love to do. I didn't mind even leading the prayers or passing the trays. But when it comes to singing, that is not something I do. In fact, uh, I have a six and a four-year-old. They, uh, two boys, they, they, they bunk. They sleep in the same room. Our bedtime routine is that I tell them some stories. I pray my wife sings over them. And she was at a Bible study a few weeks ago. So I was going to go through the routine by myself. And as I started to sing, my four-year-old put his hand up. And he said, no, Daddy, no, no. Only Mommy sings in this house, not you. <clears throat> so I stood up in front of this small church. And I, I didn't really know even how to, how to like go about it. But I had heard song leaders before like do the cadence, right? Like turn to 820, 820, 820. So they turned to 820. And then I had seen song leaders before who like moved their hands. So I started to try to move my hand like song leaders do, just have some kind of rhythm. And that's when I saw my wife on about the third row. She put one hand in the air and the other hand on top of it. And she went like this, <clears throat> hand down. All right. So I thought, okay, I'll lead singing with, with no hands. There was this one guy in that church who slept through the entire worship service. 
He didn't just sleep through the sermon. He slept through the songs. He slept through the prayers. He slept through communion. I had to like nudge him to drop a cracker in his mouth. You know, I had to hand him the grape juice. And afterwards, it was that guy who started walking down the aisle. And I could just tell by the expressions on his face. He was about to come up and say, great job, young man. But I was prepared. Because when he said that, I was going to respond with, what was your favorite part of the sermon? Just share it with me. But he slipped me a $50 bill and I decided just to let it go, all right? So I have been paid off before, all right? And I could be paid off again, all right? But Jesus gives him this command, stay awake. All right, but did you know that it, all right, in the Greek, this is more than just you like keeping your eyes open. All right, right now your eyes may be heavy or maybe you're in school sometimes or you're in work or you're sitting in that chair watching a football game on Sunday afternoons and you feel your stuff starting to fade away. It's more than keep your eyes open. Jesus is telling them you need to be spiritually alert. So it's more than just staying awake and not going to sleep. It's you need to be spiritually alert because right there in the garden, Jesus knew that there was something God wanted to teach his disciples and he didn't want them to miss it. I've had these moments in my life where I feel like God is inviting me into some intense seasons to teach me about his mission and about his heart and who he is. And sometimes I'm not very good at paying attention. And sometimes I I need to be a little better at paying attention. So every uh, once a year or so, I try to get away just to pray for two or three days with no distractions, to get away from technology, to get away from Memphis, to be alone with God. And a lot of times when I I follow that that invitation of God, to want to be spiritually alert, it can be really painful for the first day or two is God like disorients and God reveals these things in a heart or in the heart of the church they need a change and then God through his grace begins to put some things back together the first time I, I remember really happening to me I was 16 it was the summer after my sophomore year I've been through a season of some uh, intentional sin so after about two or three months of that, I went to a church camp that summer and it happened that the focus of church camp was dealing with some things I have been struggling with in my life Uh, Then I went on from that and and was wrestling with, okay, can I let go of some of the things I've been engaged in and can I follow this new way? And that's when my sister, who's three years older than me, she came home from college. And my sister and I always had a close relationship and she sat down in the room with me and she starts grilling me and asking these questions about my life and and I'm, I'm sitting there confessing to my sister and then she said, here's what we need to do tonight. I said, what do we need to do, Jenny? She said, we need to go and confess our sins to mom and dad. And I'm like, that's a good idea for you. I'm 16, and that does not sound like fun. She talked me into it. So that night, we sat down with my mom and dad, and she went first. And she started confessing some of the sins of her life. And my mom was crying before we even got to me, all right? And then I started. And both of my sister and I were crying. My mom's crying. And my mom, I'll never forget, she stood up and she ran out of the room. And I thought she ran out of the room out of disappointment. But she came back in the room with her Bible open to the Psalms and she started praying Psalms over me and my sister. The Bible is open to Psalm 103 and Psalm 51 and Psalm 63. She came back in the room and she starts praying these anointings over us. And I remember it was like the first time I really felt like I could open my hands and receive the forgiveness of God. And I knew if there's a God whose grace could cover some of the things I've done, I want to give my life to serving him. I want to be all in. If God is going to go all in for me, I want to go all in for him. And whether that sends me into full-time ministry or whether I'm a football coach, whatever I do, I want to be all in. Aren't you glad God went all in for you? Aren't you glad God did not halfway save you? Or God did not halfway deliver you? 
right? That God has gone all in. So in Luke chapter 5, you have this story. It begins in verse 4. I think we're going to have it up on the screen. Uh, in the story, Jesus is out by this lake. There's a crowd pressing on him. Jesus starts teaching from a boat. Jesus sends the fishermen out in the water, and he tells them, put the nets into deep water. Remember that story? Right? So many fish are in the nets. The nets are breaking. The boats are sinking. And in verse 4, here's what you got. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. It's the command you see show up more than any other command in Scripture. Do not be afraid. For now on you will be catching people. Now, in Matthew and Mark, when they tell this story, this is where Jesus says, don't be afraid, for now on you will be fishers of men. But in, but in Luke, there's a different word there. Right? In Luke, what Jesus says is, don't be afraid, for now on you will be catching people. It's a Greek word, zogreo, which literally means being captured alive. All right, so what Jesus is telling them is he's going to send them out on a mission Right, to capture people alive. Now, at first off, that may sound like kidnapping, and we're like, Jesus, that's against the law, but Jesus has something else in mind, all right? Jesus wants to capture people so that he reigns in hearts, like some of the songs you guys led us in this morning, right? To, to capture hearts, to reign in hearts, and then to set those people out into the world to, to capture people alive so people come under the reign of God. And don't you love that that very next verse in verse 11, they leave everything to follow him? But I think the question the church has to ask is, where do they go? And I don't think it's any coincidence that the very next story, even though chronologically it may not have worked this way, all right, but the very next story in Luke's gospel is Jesus going to a place where there's a man covered in leprosy who comes into his presence. I mean, your Bible goes as far to say that he was covered in leprosy. It's like this guy was one big piece of leprosy. Right? Leprosy is the breaking down of bodily cells where people no longer feel pain and, they, and, and just life begins to happen. So toes are falling. It's an awful disease. All right? So this person comes into the presence of Jesus even though he's supposed to be yelling unclean, unclean. Because if a, if a leper touches someone, that person became unclean. And if someone touched a leper, that person became unclean. But here's what you got to love and appreciate about Jesus. All right? Before he healed the man of leprosy, he touched the man with leprosy. So Jesus touched the person who was unclean before he healed the person who was unclean. So according to the Old Testament, according to the law, Jesus became unclean. You got to love that Jesus touches and heals a social disease sometimes before he heals a physical disease. All right, so what does this mean for the church? That God is calling us to engage our cities and to engage our towns and to engage the brokenness and some of the uncleanliness in our communities and in our contexts. Uh, the way of Jesus isn't always to disengage from life or to escape from life, but it's to engage the brokenness. I'm preaching through Ephesians right now back in Memphis. 
In, in Ephesians, Paul's writing to people in Ephesus. If you know anything about Ephesus, 2,000 years ago, it's one of the most immoral places uh, in first century life. The largest keg party in the first century was in Ephesus. There was all kind of pagan worship. There was all kind of temple prostitution. It was a, it was a evil place to live. Life was evil and evil was life. That Yet not one time in the book of Ephesians does Paul say, if you come to know Jesus, get out of this city and go somewhere else. But instead in Ephesians, you know what Paul does? The first three chapters, he talks about identity. And then he talks about what it means to be clothed in the armor of God so that now you're engaging your city in a way where, where it's making a difference. And in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, Paul started with 12 people who gave their lives to Jesus. Just 12. And there are stories about 100 AD, 50 to 60 years later, that that city of 250,000 people, that over half of Ephesus had surrendered their lives to Jesus because God sent, put 12 people on fire who began to believe this message of Jesus, of engaging a city in a context that even Ephesus began to change. God can do some great things with 12 people, can he? And I'm looking out right now in a church that has more than 12 people. God can do some great things with just a few. Uh, when I moved to Memphis about five and a half years ago, I made the mistake of praying some prayers that totally wrecked my life. I went into Memphis praying prayers of God, help my heart to be broken by the things that break your heart. Lord, help me to love this city the way you love this city. And God began to move in those prayers. I was reading through the Gospel of Luke when I moved to Memphis and I came to Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And that's where Jesus, it's the triumphal entry and he's riding into Jerusalem. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it says Jesus got off of the colt and he wept over Jerusalem. And I sat there with that verse for days. Because it hit me. Here's Jesus who weeps over Jerusalem knowing he was about to die so that people could find life. All right, and then it hit me, all right, am I willing to follow Jesus in a way where I will learn to weep over my city and my context and then to lay down my life and my resources so that people could find life? And then I preached the sermon at Sycamore View where I wasn't just encouraging people to follow Jesus in this way, but what does it mean for a church to follow Jesus in a way where we learn to weep over the brokenness in our city or in our context? And then to lay down our lives and our resources so that people could find life. Uh, we're on a journey where I am at Sycamore View. That uh, 30 plus years ago, we were the church that left the city and we moved away. And we were faced with that decision again about three or four years before I went there. There was a lot of talk about selling their facility and moving further out. Yet they engaged in a season of prayer and fasting and they decided that they were going to stay in that current location right there on the border between Memphis and the suburbs. And there was one Sunday that the church, every family unit, they took a, a little wooden cross and they went out in our front yard, our front lawn, and they nailed these little crosses and it formed this bigger cross. And it was a day that our church made a covenant that this is where we're staying. This is going to be our mission field. And then we began, when Casey and I were interviewing them, we saw some of these pictures and we, we, we heard about their vision and we thought, Man, I think we could be a part of something like this. But those crosses led people in our church to start praying prayers that, 
not only would we stay in that location, but that we would begin to engage the neighborhoods around us and the people around us so that we could have an impact, that we would be a light for Jesus in that community. And God became moving in those prayers. And there were, there were these uh, uh, young teenagers who started coming over to our facility on Wednesday nights, and they didn't have anywhere to go after school. Which led us to having a conversation with the Boys and Girls Club of Memphis. Because five and a half years ago, we added on to our facility. We had bigger space. And we had been praying that God would use every inch of our facility to be immersed in the kingdom of God in some way, somehow. So we start dating, this dating relationship with the Boys and Girls Club, which led about three years ago to them coming and using our campus. So now every day we have over 150 kids, Monday through Friday, who are on our campus. But when we did this, there were, there were a lot of concerns. And there were concerns of what if, what if a kid breaks an arm and they sue us? Or what if things show up missing? Or what if there are more scratches on our walls? And we entered into those conversations and basically what we said is, I would much rather, I'm fearful of God visiting us one day saying there are no scratches on walls. Or, or there's nothing in your church that is broken. Congratulations, you got a clean facility. And if it comes down to it, teenagers are going to break arms and I would much rather a teenager break an arm on a facility when they're in a place where they're being loved than in some gang fight or doing something after school that they shouldn't be doing and if a kid's going to break an arm for the love of God let them come break an arm on our campus and if we get sued let's trust that God can work it out but here's how it's worked uh, in my own life Casey and I moved to Memphis from Texas if you know anything about Texans Texans have some major egos can I get an amen from someone in the room? I mean, the only thing that comes close to the egos of Texans are SEC fans, all right? <clears throat> and I'm not a Texas fan, all right? But born and raised in Texas. And when we chose to move to Memphis, you would have thought we chose to move to the moon. I mean, people were coming up to us with tears in our eyes. I mean, and they were genuine. They were saying stuff like, you know Memphis isn't in Texas, right? You know they don't have brisket barbecue there. You're going to go raise your kids in Memphis? Have you watched the first 48? I mean, the things people would say. And there was, I mean, a lot of them, it was genuine concern. Like, why would two people born and raised in Texas go move to Memphis? My wife was born and raised in West Texas, and a lot of those people in West Texas have never been out of West Texas. They've just been in the land where it's so flat, you can watch your dog run away for like two weeks, you know? <laughs> We moved to Memphis and a year later, we had the first Rothschild in our family born outside of Texas in generations. And we had Texans who sent Texas soil all the way to Memphis in the mail to us in bags for us to put on the delivery room floor of the hospital room, right? So that our baby could be born on Texas soil. Now we didn't do it, but I'm pretty sure people from Kansas and Idaho and Delaware don't do that kind of stuff, right? But Texans, it's important. We moved to Memphis and we uh, started just praying these prayers. I started going on prayer drives. I would just go through cities and neighborhoods and I would, uh, I would go through some of the wealthiest neighborhoods in our city where I would see men washing cars and, and I would begin to pray knowing that if they would spend as much time like nurturing their kids as they did on the golf course or watching a, washing a car, their families would look different. I would drive through some of the poorest neighborhoods in our city praying prayers of just seeing living conditions and wondering what the resurrection has to say for people living in pockets all over our cities. After living in Memphis about a year and a half, I hit this, I hit this wall in my faith journey. I think I hit a place of compassion fatigue. 
I've been hanging out at Hope House in Memphis, which is a daycare that serves kids who suffer from the AIDS epidemic. I've been engaged in a, in a lot of just seeing so much brokenness around me and all, all, I mean, with all races and all socioeconomical classes. And I just hit this wall. And, my, and the wall I hit, the faith crisis I found myself in, wasn't does God exist or does God not exist. It was does, like, when does God choose to intervene and when does God keep his hands off? When does God choose to step in and pour out his restoration and redemption power? And when does he keep his hands off? Because if you want to engage brokenness, you're going to be left with some questions in life. It was about that time that Casey and I started praying. Where do we need to live? At the time, we were living about 25 miles away from, from Memphis. And I truly believe, and I stand here telling you, I think God wants us to have people living in every neighborhood all over our cities who are living with a purpose, who want to love neighbors, who want to live for Jesus. I think every neighborhood, God wants them to be there. We started wrestling in our own life. Did we need to live in the neighborhood where we were? Or do we need to sell our home and move into an underprivileged, blighted neighborhood to have a ministry of presence? And our journey of prayer and fasting led us to putting our house on the market early in 2010, a time when people don't need to put a house on the market to move into a blighted neighborhood in Memphis. Three weeks later, we got the call that my sister was sick. She's 31 years old, perfectly healthy, but she was, we got a call. She was going into ICU. Long story short, five days earlier, she came down with a scratchy throat. Uh, she had been running about 105 fever for about four days, which isn't uh, uncommon for Ross's because when we run fever, we go all out. We don't mess around with 101 kind of stuff. But she had been sick for about four days. Uh, what started as strep throat entered into her bloodstream. She suffered from septic shock. And 18 days later, on February 22nd of 2010, she lost her life. And so within three to six weeks, we made a decision to sell a home and to move into an inner city community and then... My, my sister uh, loses her life. So we are suffering and all this stuff going on in our hearts. But in this strange kind of way, my sister's death rooted us more and more in the hope of the resurrection, which has called us, caused us to engage Memphis with even more passion. Later that year, we ended up moving. It took us about a year to, to sell our home. We moved into a neighborhood where we've lived for over two years now. And every six months or so, my wife and I, we have to remind ourselves that, okay, what does it mean for us right now to be good, faithful neighbors? Because no matter where you live, it has to be more than a number with a street name on your address. Wherever you live, if you have been baptized, if you've entered into a covenant with Jesus, wherever you live, it is a mission field. It's more than a number with a street name. It's a mission so we have to remind ourselves, okay, are we loving neighbors? And sometimes for us, it's as simple as going on 30-minute walks around the neighborhood and just engaging in conversations. We live in a front porch community, so there are a lot of people who, who hang out on front porches, so it's easier to engage them. But we need to know our neighbors, and we want to love them, and we want to, to be sensitive to how God wants us to speak life into them. Last December was one of those times where I was like, okay, I, I just don't feel like I'm being a very good neighbor. So I remember one Wednesday night, I was just laying it before the Lord, God, God, help me to be a better neighbor. And I went home that night. This was in December. It was chilly outside. I pulled into my driveway at 8.30 and my neighbor across the street comes running to me with her hands in the air. She is yelling and screaming for help. And I'm thinking someone is in, someone's broken into her house. There's been a heart attack. I didn't know what was wrong. And she said, there is a mouse in my sink. I need help. <laughs> 
And my first thought was, I don't do mice. <laughs> and I started trying to come up with excuses, like I need to go do dishes for my wife or something. You know? uh, but I, but I, then it hit me. I've been praying, God, help me to be a better neighbor. And sometimes God moves in weird ways, right? Now, this is a woman who grew up in a place in Memphis called Orange Mound, which has sometimes been uh, some neighborhoods in Orange Mound or some of the roughest neighborhoods in Orange Mound. This is a woman that could beat me up with a flip-flop, all right? Yet when it came to a mouse, she was, she was scared to death. So I said, ma'am, let me just think of a strategy and then I'll come help you. And she looked at me and she said, boy, we ain't got time for no strategy. Go get my mouse. <clears throat> I said, let me just see it. Let me see what it looks like. So I went in. I looked, in, I looked in their sink, and it was, it was like the size of a quarter, all right? A small little half-dollar mice, all right? It's more scared of me than I was of him. And I'm sitting there, and now I'm thinking through options of how am I going to get rid of this thing? And my first, I'm just going through options in my head. My first thought was, just flush it down the garbage disposal, okay? I'm going through options in my head, all right? I didn't do it. And then I thought, well, option number two, I could set a mouse trap throw the mousetrap in the sink and just wait until there's a snap and then that would take care of the problem. Or option three, I could try to safely transport it outside. Now let's be honest, how many of you would have flushed it down the garbage disposal? All right. How many of you would have set the mousetrap just because you like the adventure? Do we got any? How many of you would have tried to safely transport it? And how many of you didn't lift a hand because you were taught to never lift a hand in a worship service? All right. <laughs> just joking, just joking. I decided to try to safely transport it. I put on a mitt, I scooped that little dude, and he starts running up my arm, and I did one of these. And this scream came out of me that I didn't even know was, was inside of me. I was very embarrassed by it, right? It freaks out grandma and her daughter and the granddaughter. You know, they're peeking through the door in the back of the house. What happened? What happened? So then I got another mitt, scooped it, ended up getting it outside. And now every time they see me, they call me the, the hero of the neighborhood. You know, you never know how God's going to move in some of these prayers of, God, help me to be a better neighbor. For my wife, it was through a stray dog that she made a connection. My wife travels and speaks at girl events, teenage girl events, and it was through a stray dog she made a connection. And it was this woman who said, ma'am, I know you're in this neighborhood because you want to live for Jesus. And if you know of anyone who likes having Bible studies with teenage girls, will you let me know? Because I have two teenage girls with some other friends in the neighborhood, and they asked me the other day about having a Bible study. For a year and a half, my wife met with them. And there were a lot of Bible studies. She said it was very difficult. And now, guess who those girls call when they have a problem in life or when they turn up pregnant? They call my wife. All right, what does it mean for us to live in a way where we follow Jesus? to weep over our cities, our towns, our neighborhoods, our communities, wherever we are, and then to be willing to lay down our lives and our resources so that people can find life. You know, uh, when, ship, when people build ships, sometimes they can sit there on the bay, they can sit there on the shore, and they can look gorgeous and beautiful, but ships weren't made to sit on a shore. They're made to sail. Right? They're made to move. There's a woman uh, not too long ago, she teaches at a seminary in Georgia. And she painted this image one day. She said, you know, a lot of times in our churches when we take communion, our faces are towards the front. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
But we're looking up at a stage and the bread and the cup is brought to us, but most of the time we're looking up front. She said, what if just one Sunday, what if just one Sunday we took communion out to the sidewalks of our church facilities? And just one Sunday, we didn't take communion with our faces towards a stage, but we took communion with our faces out, looking out at communities and neighborhoods where people live with our backs to the church. And we take communion with our hands, touching the bread and touching the cup. And as we remind ourselves of this covenant that we're in with Jesus, we remind ourselves of how Jesus is sending us, how Jesus is sending the local church out into the world to make a difference. So we're re-upping in our commitment with Jesus, but we're also re-upping in what it means to be God's people in the world. And I want you to think about it. Today we're, we're moving the tables. I understand this is something you guys do sometimes here in this church. And we're going to actually move the tables. And I love the thought of moving to a table to get the bread in the cup and moving back to a seat. Because you know, in, in first century life, one of the earliest documents we have after the Bible had been written is that when the church would come together, there would be the ministry of the word, there would be teaching, and then there would be ministry of the table where they would come around a table. And communion was always taken from that space, wherever they were, out into the streets. And they would go take it to people who weren't there that day. So communion has always had this element of moving, moving for the sake of other people. So I want us to remind ourselves of that today. I'm going to pray. We're going to move the tables and I'll stand up again here in a moment. Let's pray together. God, we thank you, Lord, that that you didn't halfway save us. We thank you today that you are just as much horizontal as you are vertical. You're not just some bird hovering in the air. You're not some lifeguard who occasionally jumps in to save us. But through Jesus, you teach us that you were here among us. God, we celebrate today that heaven has never been closer than it is right now in this moment. We celebrate that there are pieces of heaven that are breaking into this earth. And thank you, Jesus, that you taught us to pray for your kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you that you don't just save us, but you commission and you call those that you save. You send us out with a purpose. And today as we take this bread and we take this cup, we remind ourselves of a body that was broken so that this world could experience life. And God, may we follow Jesus in the same kind of way that we will surrender to your will, that we will lay ourselves on the line so that people can experience your salvation and live into all of the blessings and promises that you have to give us. So we thank you for this time. And we re-up and renew our covenant with you. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. It hit me a few years ago as I was reflecting upon just my heart with God that I don't ever want God to visit me. I don't want God to visit me one day or in the end that God sits down with me and says, congratulations, you always played it safe. That I want to learn what it means to follow Jesus in a way where I'm willing to take some risks for people and to help lead a church in the same kind of way where we we take risks. We don't just play it safe. Uh, a couple of years ago when I found myself needing just to wrestle through some questions about the intervention of God, I began to journal. 
At the time, I didn't have publication in mind. It ended up turning into a book, but at first, it was just a journal for me to be able to write and to be able to tell the story and to work through some grief through my, my sister's tragic death and also how my wife and I and our family was trying to engage Memphis and some of the, the brokenness we were experiencing through that. And one day, as I was writing, this image and metaphor came to me, just the image of scars, And I started thinking about all the scars that I bear in my own life. So I started writing about that. And and it hit me that a few things about scars. A scar is a healed wound, right? And we could have a lot of fun today going through this room talking about physical scars and why they are there. But a scar is a healed wound. And whether it is a a physical, social, emotional, I'm sure, I I don't know hardly anyone here. I'm sure there are people here suffering from grief in a number of different ways. And you have endured plenty of wounds in your life and also scars. But a scar is a healed wound. And are we willing to follow God and to surrender to God in a way where those wounds in our lives, where they become scars? But one thing God also taught me is that every scar has a story. There's not a scar you bear, physical, emotional, social, psychological, that doesn't have a story that goes with it. You will never take your shirt off and see some mark on your shoulder and think, how in the world did that get there, right? You, there's a story that goes with the scar. And what God opened me up to that day as I was writing is, you are a scarred man, but you live in a very scarred world. We have a world full of scars. And do we believe that God can redeem the scars in this world? And do we believe that the church needs to be a place where those wounds and those scars can be shared as we point people to how God can redeem the wounds and the scars of our lives and also the wounds and the scars of our society? So today, we're gonna have a time of prayer. We're gonna stand, we're gonna sing a song, and there's gonna be a time of prayer because someone here may have a wound or a scar that you need to lay before your brothers and sisters here There may be a wound that you need God to help heal so that it can become a scar. And there may be someone here who needs God to give you the courage and the boldness to to not try to cover up all the wounds and scars of your life but be able to share them in community so you can experience healing but also use the scars of your life to help speak and declare God's redemption to those around you. Can we stand today? Feel free to come while we stand, while we sing a song.